the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Gospel of John, and last week we studied Jesus washing the disciples' feet from John chapter 13. In the middle of John chapter 13, we get a little discussion with the most famous of the disciples, Judas Iscariot. And the reason we use the two names is because there's another Judas, Jude Thaddeus, who's a disciple. We don't talk about him very often because he's barely mentioned, but there's another disciple named Judas, so we distinguish this one. And then Jesus has a brother named Judas, uh, and he's the guy that wrote the little bitty book right at the very end of your New Testament, right before Revelation, Jude, uh, and the name Judas was in such disrespect after Judas Iscariot, people started changing their name. They didn't want to be known by Judas anymore, so they called Jesus' little brother Jude. Uh, so we'll talk about that as we go forward, but to put it into context, we're going to be looking at what I call Insights on Judas Iscariot, Part 1. And the reason I've got to call it Part 1 is when we get to John chapter 18, we get to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas shows up again. And so the infamous kiss on the cheek, the other stories, uh, or the other uh, passages about Jesus communicating with Judas and Judas communicating with Jesus. We're going to do Judas part two once we get to John chapter 18, but this morning's an introduction, and as I said last week, for those of you who are here, we're going to be answering a lot of your questions about him. He's an enigma. You wonder why Jesus picked him. You wonder how long Jesus knew in advance he was going to betray him. The answer is forever. Uh, and then the question is why? Because if you know you're going to be betrayed, why let the traitor into your midst? And I think you'll find the personal application for that very uh, insightful for you and hopefully uh, meaningful for you based on different experiences in your life. We got a little bit of insight on Judas if you've been in our study for a couple of months when I taught you John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, there's the anointing of Jesus. You remember he's at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house, uh, and there's the pouring out of the oil on his head, and Judas got upset. John chapter 12 told us the story of why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor. This is a year's worth of wages. If you cross-reference that story with Matthew, when Jesus calls him out, he's so mad He's so dejected, he runs to the Jewish high priest and sets up the plan for the betrayal that starts in John chapter 13, and we're going to see ultimately fulfilled in John chapter 18. Now, his name, by way of brief, brief background, Judas was one of the most popular names in first century Israel. Today, you never hear the name because today it's on the same rank as Adolf, or uh, something like that. It's got a very negative connotation, so you don't see little kids, little boys being named Judas. In first century Israel, though, because of a guy named Judas Maccabees, who led the Jewish revolution about 200 years before Christ, it would be like naming your son after George Washington or somebody else equally famous. Uh, he was a, a, a patriot in his, or the name was a patriot, a patriot's name in their culture. Iscariot is not his last name. They didn't use last names by and large. If they gave a connotation, it would be the son of somebody or where they're from. Iscariot is a reference to where he's from, which is of Kerioth. It's a city in Judea. It's south of Jerusalem. I've got it up on your map. Uh, if you're really, really bored in your next trip to Israel, you can go visit it, but it's just a pile of rocks. No tour guides that I know of take people there because no one is from there except Judas Iscariot, and no one cares about him except in these weird little questions we have that we're going to answer today. 
His background is significant because he was highly educated. In fact, he's probably the most educated of all the disciples. He would have had the equivalent in our culture of a master's degree or a PhD in mathematics or accounting because they trusted him enough to be the treasurer, to keep the numbers, to keep the coins of the uh, of all the disciples. So if anybody gave them a gift, Judas was the one that carried it. Judas was the one that did the accounting on buying food, on paying for a place to sleep, on paying for sleeping bags or tents or whatever else they needed. So his background was educated. His position was accountant. And if you look at the resumes of all the disciples, if you're Jesus' chief of staff in 30 AD, and you've got the disciples of Peter, or the uh, uh, CVs, the resumes of Peter and Andrew and John and Jude Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and all the other disciples. If you lay out all their resumes, I guarantee you Judas would have been your number one selection. Because the way we pick people is based on pedigree on paper. Thankfully, that is not the way God chooses people for ministry. God does not choose people for ministry or to be included in his word based on pedigree. All the disciples are more than happy to let this guy be the treasure, the most trusted position among the disciples, because on paper, Judas looked better than everybody else. Judas is also a little bit of an outsider. Because as a little bit of an outsider, he's the only Judean. He's the only one of the disciples from the south. He would have been the only disciple that would say, y'all, for example. <laughs> Everybody else is a Galilean. They're from the north. They had a little bit different dialogue. They didn't say y'all. They used a little bit different uh, use of Aramaic a little bit different form of uh, Greek. And so in Galilee, all the Galilean, the other 11 disciples would have been uh, related or friends or people they had heard of from growing up in Galilee. Judas from being pretty far down south would have been different. And his ministry is interesting because in scripture, he's repeatedly mentioned, but he's always last. And he's frequently mentioned in reference to his treachery. So as they wrote the Gospels, after the events occurred, uh, the context of his uh, tre uh, treachery is never missed by anyone. Now, our story takes place at the Last Supper. John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 all take place the final night. As I told you last week, we're going to compress down time. We're going to look exactly at what Jesus said and why he said it. And this passage from verses 18 through 30 is the discussion that involves Judas and the life lessons that we draw from it. In verse 18, he picks up where we left off. In verse 18, he picked up washing the disciples' feet. His last command was, I urge you to wash each other's feet. And last week I taught you what that meant, why Jesus would not let them wash his feet, why he said, wash each other's feet. And he picks up and he says, in reference to washing all of your feet, he says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. And then he quotes, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Or if we were going to translate that in living Bible, if we're going to translate that in, into modern English, we'd say he hurt me. When it says he lifted up his heel against me, it means he set me up and he hurt me. And then he continues on in verse 19. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. I am the Messiah. In other words, he's saying, I'm telling you in advance, there's a traitor among you. I'm telling you in advance, there's someone in our midst that is not a real believer and he's saying, I'm telling you this, so you're going to know that I'm the Messiah. I know everything that's going on. Now, he's quoting scripture. Let me just close the loop here on what he's doing because he cross-references Psalm 41.9. The cross-reference of Psalm 41.9 is David praying about treachery that he experienced, a betrayal that he experienced. We don't know from the context where the betrayal was, but we know David wrote about it, and then John quotes from it as he quotes Jesus, quoting Psalm 41.9. Now, 
Did Jesus know that Judas would betray him? The answer is absolutely. I'm going to show you the specific verse in John 13, but I've already given you two little insights in teaching the gospel of John over the past couple of months. Way back when I taught you about Nathaniel, when I taught you about Jesus going to Nathaniel and calling him under the tree in John 25, it said he didn't need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in or inside each person. So Jesus knew J Judas's character. He knew Judas's uh, personality. He knew his ultimate uh, uh, destiny. He knew all of those things. In John 6, which I taught you a couple of months ago, Jesus, in the midst of that story, references, Have I not chosen you the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? And we're going to see this morning why he referenced that in John chapter 6. And this morning's quote from John uh, 13 verse 21, as we continue in our passage of scripture, when Jesus had said this, the passage I just read to you a minute ago, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, I assure you, one of you will betray me. This was a loud statement for everybody there. When it says he is troubled, it's using the Greek word for deeply distressed. He's aching. The last time we saw him use this word, it's the word used to describe him when he came upon Lazarus' tomb. He was distressed that his close friend Lazarus was dead. He was close that no one saw him, or distressed that no one saw him as having the power to raise Lazarus until it occurred. So it's a very descriptive Greek word describing the essence of Jesus' spirit here being very, very distressed. And he says, one of you will betray me. Both the gospel of Luke and the gospel of Matthew say at this point, another debate breaks out among the disciples where they say, is it me? And Matthew records that even Judas with an innocent expression says, is it me, Lord? As everybody was saying the same thing, he's still playing the role of the pretender. He's still acting as if he's as loyal as everyone else. In a little insight here, biblical insight, fallen men and women need more than a good example. You talk to people of other faiths and the most complimentary thing they'll say about Jesus is he was a wise man. He's a good example for us. Judas is the picture-perfect example why that's not enough. Think about it. Judas heard and saw everything. He saw the feeding of the 4,000, which was probably closer to 12,000. He saw the feeding of 5,000, which is really, when you count the men and women, closer to 20,000. He saw Jesus walk on the water. He saw all the miracles of the healing of the lepers. He saw the blind people that could see for the first time and tell you what color your coat was. He could see the, the people that were deaf that could hear sounds for the first time. He saw Jesus give people the ability to speak language for the first time. He saw it all, and it was not enough to convert his spirit, his soul. And so Jesus has to be more than a good example. He's got to be our savior. He's got to get into our heart. He's got to be accepted into our heart to transform us with a spirit of new life, because he's not just here to be a good example. Judas Iscariot shows he uh, uh, was a good example to Judas, and Judas still failed. Now, why did Jesus call Judas? This is the essence of the lesson. If there's a final exam in this class, if this is a seminary class or a college grad school on, on Bible, this is on the final, because it's a really big deal. The first one I've already hinted to. I cross-referenced Psalm 41. It was fulfillment of Scripture. It's also a fulfillment of Psalm 55, which is another comment on, uh, it's not an enemy who reproaches me, for I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me, who's exalted himself against me, and I could hide myself from him. But it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. That's cross-referenced in the Gospel of Luke as the fulfillment of Scripture through Judas. We've also got Zechariah. The Old Testament book of Zechariah says in chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, that the traitor 
is going to betray for 30 pieces of silver and it's going to be thrown into the potter's house. That's exactly what happens with Judas. I'll teach you the rest of that story in John chapter 18. I'll cross-reference this again in John chapter 18. Uh, in John chapter 17, so I'm jumping forward a little bit, Jesus makes this point crystal clear, but if I'm answering the question, why did Jesus call Judas if he knows he's going to betray him? We got to tackle this issue from John chapter 17 that says, while I was with them, this is a part of his prayer, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me. That's all the disciples. I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. That's a reference to Judas Iscariot so that scripture would be fulfilled. So Jesus closes the loop in John chapter 12, sorry, John chapter 17. He alludes to it in John chapter 13. So in both places where I'm going to teach you Judas, Jesus says, I called him and I brought him in so he would be one of my disciples. Now, that still begs the question, why does Jesus want a traitor in his midst? Why does Jesus want to go through the horror of betrayal? And the answer is so that he, Jesus, can empathize with me and you if there is a betrayal in your life. Betrayal is the second point. One is scripture fulfilled. Number two is empathy with betrayal. Now, I'm not going to take a survey, but I know most of your stories, and I know for most of you, if I did take a survey, you would raise your hand and say, at some point in the past, I've had a betrayal in my life. For some of you, it might be vocational, and a vocational betrayal, where somebody promised you something, then you didn't get it. For some of you, it might be a family member where there was a betrayal with a family member. For some of you, it may be relational. There may be a betrayal in some relationship in your past. But what I know from reading psychologists is that betrayal is, has, been, has been described, and I think accurately so, as the single greatest emotional pain a human can experience. The reason betrayal is worse than loss, worse than death, is because it's loss plus something else bad. It's the death of a friendship or the death of a relationship plus an intentional act of betrayal. It is worse than rejection because rejection hurts no matter when in your past rejection occurred but it is rejection plus an intentional action of betrayal. So as much as death or loss hurts you, as much as rejection hurts you, betrayal is loss or a type of death plus something horrifically painful. It is rejection plus something horrific. So Jesus being the one who is our Savior that can relate to everything you and I experience in life, whether it's past betrayal or maybe for some of you that have not experienced it, it might be a future betrayal. Wherever you find yourself on the spectrum, it's included here because if you have ever been betrayed in your past, it is Jesus saying, I've been there and I can relate to you and I can relate to your pain. And because I can relate to it, I can walk you through it as someone who empathizes with your betrayal. Hebrews gives us a great cross-reference in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. It's talking about Jesus' experiences of everything we experienced. Since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Understands there is our Greek word for personal experiential understanding. It's not book learning. It's not just visual observation. It's my Greek word for he experienced it. And as I've said before, in Greek, all means all, just like in English. It means everything. 
It means every sorrow, every heartache, every question, every doubt, every regret, whatever it is that you've experienced, including today's concept of maybe some betrayal in your past, Jesus has experienced that as well. As I reference, this concept of betrayal is significant. For most people that go through betrayal, it is utterly debilitating. You lose your ability to focus. You lose your desire to live. Most of you, if you experienced it, would give up and give a testimony that you lost your desire to work. You wonder, has God abandoned me? It is the worst of human emotions because as one psychologist I read described it, it's like the person that you lost being killed or the loss of the person that has rejected you walking away and they shot you before they did it or they shot you before they died. So it's a wounding of you on top of what happens to somebody else, on top of their uh, uh, loss or their rejection or whatever it may be. So if you've got an instance of betrayal in your past that is very, very um, uh, sensitive to you because of how deeply moving it would have been in your life whenever you were betrayed at that point in the past. I reference empathy versus sympathy because it's important for us to realize that our Savior, while a sympathetic Savior, is an empathetic Savior. In other words, meaning he went through it, and that means all the difference in the world. There are a thousand life experiences that I have not experienced, and I can be sympathetic to it. But if it's something I've gone through personally, I can be empathetic because I know how hurtful it is. I know how lost you might feel. I know how confused you might feel. If I can feel empathy, it's not just me putting myself in your shoes. It's me experiencing something like it and coming up next to you and putting my arm around you and saying, I know the pain. I know the struggle. Let me pray with you. Let me reference you to a psalm or something that helped me when I had something similar. And empathy, you know from experience, is far more transformative than just sympathy. Sympathy is a warm feeling. You appreciate the love. Empathy is transformative because as Pastor Greg preached about this morning, we're encouraged knowing somebody walked this road ahead of me. His cross-reference to Hebrews chapter 12 was a whole bunch of people have walked the road ahead of you that you might find yourself in right now, whether it's vocational, whether it's family, whether it's uh, relational, whether it's kid, whether it's parent, whatever it is, there's others that have walked that road ahead of you, and that's the empathetic encouragement that is far more significant than just having sympathy. So we ask the question of why did Jesus call Judas? Those are the two reasons. So uh, scripture can be fulfilled and to empathize with any of you when you feel betrayed. But there is a bigger and better question, because as much as we want to look at Judas and scratch our head and go, why would he call such a scummy guy to be among the disciples? The better question is, why did Jesus call us? <laughs> Judas is the lowest of the low because of his betrayal. But if we all do an inventory of our own sin, honesty for me and honesty for you does not put us any higher than Judas Iscariot. For three years, he lived a good life as a disciple. For three years, he did everything Jesus asked him to do. For three years, he listened, he followed, he served, he gave. For three years, he was as perfect of a disciple. So when Jesus said, there's a traitor among you, not one single person said, it's that shifty, shady Judas. No one predicted it because he walked the walk to perfection. He's at the bottom of the list of disciples because of his betrayal. But if you put my sin, you put your sin on top of it, we do not come out looking any better than Judas Iscariot. Jesus called us and we responded. Jesus called Judas and the only difference is he failed to respond. That is the only difference. There is no sin difference between me and Judas Iscariot. 
there is no sin difference between you and Judas Iscariot. So before we put him in the trash pile of history, keep in mind that we all can walk the same walk and do the same thing and listen to Jesus' words and stay close to Jesus. The issue is, has there been a conversion in your heart for which there is evidence of a changed life? That's the only test that matters. Now, for us, it raises some fascinating question about God's will. Was it God's will that Judas be the traitor to Jesus? Yes, I already answered that. There's a question of God's omniscience. Did he know exactly when and where and the dollar amount of the treachery? Yes, we've already covered that. Was Judas a puppet? And the answer is no. In this story in John chapter 13, in the next story we're going to look at in a couple of weeks from John chapter 18, Jesus lovingly, forgivingly, graciously calls on Judas to turn until the very last minute. Jesus' patience, Jesus' long-suffering, Jesus' forgiveness before there was sin, Jesus' graciousness, Jesus' honor of him, as I'm going to teach you in a minute, lasted until the very, very end. Now, I mention this not only to contrast Judas, but to teach us a little bit. For all of those people in your world, particularly those that may be lost, that you're still trying to pray for, you're still trying to uh, witness to them and share with them, God's got a will, and you don't know it. You don't know who God wills to be in his kingdom and not, but we got to witness to everybody. God's got an omniscience of who's ultimately he's going to call, but we don't know it, so we still have to witness to everybody. But God gives them a free will. God has no puppets. God is not the puppet master. And it is a tension that we are only going to figure out when we get into heaven and with heavenly eyes and ears can see and hear how God works to understand how he can have absolute will, absolute omniscience, and we, just like Judas, have total free will to accept or reject. I certainly can't explain it in a little Sunday morning Bible study lesson, but I can highlight the tension because Judas is a picture of it. And you and I are a picture of it. We, by our own free will, chose him after he called us. And for all of those we're trying to witness to at our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our extended family, all of those that we're trying to witness to to bring to Christ, there's a free will issue that when they reject us, they're not rejecting our witness. They're rejecting God calling them. So we're supposed to be faithful and keep giving our testimony, keep sharing the Great Commission, keep sharing our faith. Our story in John 13 continues. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved. Let me stop there for a second. The last paragraph of John tells us who that is. It's John himself. It's the writer. He is so humble, he never refers to himself by a first-person pronoun, me, I, he never calls himself John in the second person. He refers to himself as the one Jesus loved. The one Jesus loved was reclining close beside Jesus. The way they would sit, and I'll show you a little drawing in a minute, that means in the place of service, John is on Jesus' right. Simon Peter, we know, is sitting opposite. Simon Peter motioned to John to find out who it was he was talking about. So he, John, leaned back against Jesus and asked him, or if you and I were writing it, we would say, whispered to him, Lord, who is it? So let me give you the seating diagram. Jesus is in the host seat. The host seat is not in the middle of the table. The host seat was in the second seat. That's just a cultural thing they did. The seat of highest honor the foreign dignitary, the traveling family member, the oldest son, whoever you're trying to honor at the meal has the seat immediately to the host's left. Jesus sat Judas in the seat of highest honor. It wasn't Simon Peter, the leader of the disciples. It wasn't 
James, son of Zebedee, John's older brother. It wasn't Andrew. It's not Matthew. It's not Simon the Zealot. It's Judas has the seat of honor. And that significant is because Judas was in the seat of honor as a picture of Jesus' never-ending mercy, his never-ending love. He's already announced there's a traitor among you and I'm going to be betrayed so that scripture may be fulfilled. And knowing exactly who that is, he puts Judas in the seat of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. It's intended to be jaw-dropping awesome because all of us would have booted out Judas long before this meal started saying, you're not worthy of having a meal with us. Get out of here, scoundrel. I'm staying with those who are loyal to me. That's what we would do in our humanistic response. Jesus takes the known betrayer, known only to him, and puts him in a seat of honor, puts him in a seat of love, and says, I know what your heart is. I know what you've started to do already. I am going to show you unconditional love. I am going to show you unconditional honor. I'm going to show you unconditional mercy before you've even asked for it. Now, the other interesting place is John. John is sitting to his right. They didn't have chairs back then that they would eat in. They had low tables that would sit about a foot or foot and a half off the ground. They would sit down on soft, nice cushions, and they would eat leaning back where their legs are under the table and kind of at an angle. So as John is leaning back, he's leaning back into the chest of Jesus. As Jesus leans back, he leans back into the chest of Judas, and so on all the way around the table. And the reason why Peter is in the last seat on the right is he, as the leader, doesn't have anybody to lean back on. He's holding up all the rest of them as they recline in an intimate, close position with your shoulder or the back of your head touching the chest of the person behind you. So literally, if John wants to whisper to Jesus, he turns his head about 45 degrees and his mouth and Jesus' face are a couple of inches apart. He can whisper and Jesus can hear him no matter what he whispers. For John, it's the seat of the server, the seat of the servant. The reason why that person is on the end is because the seat of the server would be where the person who's not a servant, but someone eating the meal that's going to pass around the wine would sit. If it's a family meal, it's where the wife would sit to the right of her husband. So John, as the youngest of the disciples, the disciple that Jesus loved the most, was in the seat of the server. Life lesson, just like John, when we are close to the heart of the Lord, we are always in the best position to ask him questions. John sat there, we presume voluntarily, because Jesus would have given instruction who gets the seat of honor, and everybody else just would have fallen into place. The guys that before the foot washing are arguing over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom did not take the seat of John in the seat of the server, right? John takes the most unglamorous of seats. Judas takes the seat of honor. Simon Peter takes the seat of leadership holding up everybody else because he doesn't have anybody to lean back on. Everybody else just kind of fills in. We don't know where everybody else was sitting. Back to John 13. John 13 continues. Jesus replies, remember this is to the whisper to John. Jesus whispers back to John. Nobody else around them can hear because John just turns his head and said, Lord, who is it? Jesus replies, he is the one I give the piece of bread after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. Now, What's significant about this bread? It's called the sop. It's a piece of unleavened bread at Passover. At Passover, there's a lot of unleavened bread. But the very first piece of unleavened bread is dipped in a mixture 
that the book of Exodus says what to put in. It's basically just kind of some salty herbs, herbs, and you dip it, and the host gives it to the one most honored. So it's a double honor. He seats him in the place of the highest honor. And then he gives him the sop, the unleavened bread dipped in the herbs, as the first giving of the unleavened bread to signal the start of the Passover meal. So it's a double honor of the betrayer, a double honor of the treacherous. And he says to John, as he whispers next to him, it's the one I'm going to give the bread to. It was a sign of extreme honor, a sign of double honor, but most significantly to accept it was a sign of loyalty. To accept the seat of honor would mean I am loyal to you, leader of this household or leader of this band or leader of this group that's having dinner together. To accept the sop was to say, I will give up my life for you if necessary. It would normally be given to the oldest son in a family sitting. If it's a foreign dignitary being led by the king, it would be the foreign dignitary saying to the king, I'll take the seat of honor, thank you, and when you give me this bread, I'll lay down my life for you. It shows Judas playing the part to perfection. No one around the table except maybe John now getting a little bit of an insight, whoa, something's going on with Judas, and he shows shock, he can't talk. All the other 10 disciples are like, wow, the treasurer has done an awesome job. The treasurer has kept the books to perfection. Our CFO has got the seat of honor and the sop, and he eats it and pledges his loyalty to our Savior. Judas, let us give you a round of applause. The other 10 would have been envious at the honor, the double honor, that Jesus bestowed on Judas Iscariot. Now, verse 27, after Jesus, uh, sorry, after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Therefore, Jesus told him, what you're doing, do so quickly. Now, I'm going to pause for a second on this issue of Satan entering Judas because although I've taught this months and months and months ago in other lessons, I got to teach it again because it's really important. So the idea of Satan entering someone, hang on, I'm going to get there. Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. Why did he say do it quickly? The reason why it's got to be quickly is Jesus is our Passover lamb. And we know from the story that Passover has now begun. They are having their Passover meal before most people. Most people are not going to have their Passover meal till the next daybreak as they're starting to experience sunrise. It's going to be a pre-sunset Passover meal for most people. Jesus is going to be on the cross then. So Jesus, as soon as it's night, as soon as the Passover has begun, because on the Jewish calendar, the day began at sundown. Passover starts when Jesus says, go quickly. He wants, he knows the Passover lamb has got to be on, has got to be sacrificed on the Passover. Judas, go quickly. I know what's going on. Take off. We got to do this on Passover. Verses 28. None of those reclining at the table knew why he told him this. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. All of those that had any clue what was going on, were, were, or those who knew the Passover meal was going on, were clueless as to what was being experienced when this communication took place. It says in verse 30, after receiving the piece of bread, he, Judas, went out immediately, and it was night. That's the indication of our chronology. That's the indication the Passover's begun, and it's the start of the betrayal. It's going to be the start of what Jesus teaches until he leaves for the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to follow this through John chapter 17 until the betrayal in John chapter 18. Now, we've talked about why Jesus treated Judas the way he did. 
its honor, its grace, its forgiveness up until the very, very end. Why did Judas betray Jesus? There is a whole bunch of modern speculation. If you read a bunch of modern literature about Jesus, or sorry, about Judas, modern books about Judas want to portray him as a really good guy that's been painted bad in history. It's liberal scholarship that says, don't give Judas a hard time. Judas was trying to compel Jesus into the position of becoming an earthly king. Jesus was trying to compel Jesus into the position of the earthly Messiah that David prophesied about, not a sacrificial Messiah that he couldn't wrap his brain around. That's all speculation. We don't have any idea. We do know two things for Scripture. Number one, he was a complete coward. Luke chapter 22 tells us that when he went to the chief priest, he consented on how to do the betrayal in the very last verse I've got on the screen, and he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Judas wanted the betrayal in the darkness of night with no one to know he was the betrayer. He was a coward. He didn't want anyone to know the truth. He wanted the betrayal to be under the cloak of darkness. And we also know that Satan entered him. I gave you the cross-reference. I said I'd come back to it. I cross-reference it here. The betrayal, to me, is clearly Satan taking possession and Satan then controlling him from here on out. Luke 22 tells us the parallel story. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. So we've got two different gospel references to Satan entering into the body of Judas. That then raises a corollary question. Was Judas really a Christian? The other side of the coin would be, can Satan enter into the body of a Christian? The answer biblically is no. A Christian cannot be possessed by a demon. A Christian cannot be possessed by Satan for one biblical reason. As a Christian, the Holy Spirit is already there. And if the Holy Spirit is there, Scripture makes clear in about three dozen places, once the Holy Spirit is there, Nothing can shake that believer out of the hand of God. Our, 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 our salvation is secure for eternity. Now, can a believer be oppressed by a demon? You better believe it. Can a believer be influenced by a demon or by Satan? You better believe it. Can a believer be whispered lies to by a demon or Satan himself? You better believe it. But being whispered to, being oppressed, being manipulated like Job in the Old Testament, Satan oppressed him, Satan talked to him, Satan tormented him, but he was always a child of God. So there is the possibility of a Christian being oppressed tormented, lied to by a demon or Satan himself. But the reason why we know Judas will not be in heaven is because if the Holy Spirit was in his heart, there's no place for Satan. If the Holy Spirit had transformed his life and if he was born again, Satan would not have had the opportunity to enter in. So our life lesson from that is real simple. Judas gave Jesus his life, but he never gave him his heart. Think about that for a minute. Judas attended every single Bible study. Judas attended every single church service. Judas prayed when all the other disciples prayed. Judas knew his Bible. He knew Hebrew scriptures cold because he knew what Jesus said when he said, I'm the Messiah. He knew exactly what it meant because he knew scripture. So he's faithful in his actions. He's faithful in going to Bible study. He's faithful to go into church. He's faithful in his prayers. He's faithful in reading scripture. 
he believes in the Messiah, he's acting like a whole bunch of people act in 2021. What's missing? The Holy Spirit in his heart. The sad thing is none of us have the ability to look into someone's soul. None of us have the ability to look into someone's heart and know, is the Holy Spirit really in there? The Gospel of James gives us the answer, and the sorry, the Gospel, the book of James gives us the answer, and the book of James says, the only way we know whether someone is a believer is by their actions. It's do you see the Holy Spirit when they deal with you? Do you see the Holy Spirit when they talk to you? Do you see the Holy Spirit when they serve other people? Do you see the Holy Spirit when they respond to different circumstances in life? And it's still not up to us to judge because we're sinful human beings and we can still have the Holy Spirit in our heart and sin horribly. James just says, God knows what's in each person's heart. We can look at certain people and say, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt they're a believer because I see what the Holy Spirit does in their words and their actions. That's supposed to be encouragement for us. But if there's someone who professes to be a Christian and you just see sin in their life, it's not up to us to condemn them. That's up to God to work on them. But we've got to be a believer in their lives. We've got to encourage them. We've got to be an example for them. We've got to help them with anything they may be struggling with. We are not called to condemn we are called to help them, as we talked about in last week's lesson with washing the feet. Let me give you three applications and we're done. Number one, Judas is history's greatest example of lost opportunity and wasted privilege. Imagine what he could have done if he had repented at the last moment and said, I am going to give my heart finally to my Savior. Think about all the people he could have influenced given his position of prominence. Only heaven knows. Number two, Judas gives us all an amazing picture of the patience, mercy, and loving kindness of our Lord. The double honor, the patience to the very end, giving him the opportunity until the very last second, as we'll see in John chapter 18, in the Garden of Gethsemane, to still repent, and it's an amazing picture of patience and love. Finally, Judas is a picture that someone can know Jesus, talk to Jesus, call him Lord, and spend time close to his word, but still not have a converted heart. That's the illustration I gave you a couple of minutes ago. As I did my research for the lesson, I came across a poem. Uh, it was quoted by Charles Spurgeon. I have no idea where Spurgeon got it from, but it's a reflection on Judas. I thought it was a great way to end. Still as of old, men by themselves are priced. For 30 pieces, Judas sold himself, not Christ. That's the tragedy. He sold himself for 30 pieces of silver. Our sin is is the exact same way. We're selling short ourselves, which is why we've got to keep short list. We got to ask for forgiveness for those we hurt. We got to repent to God Almighty. We've got to do all the things that forgiveness requires when we sin, because it's not hurting God, it's hurting us and our relationship to God. So that's why Judas is here. Stay tuned. In a couple of weeks, you're going to get Judas part two in John chapter 18. If you like this, that study on Judas is even better. So keep coming back. Now, next week is the 4th of July. To my utter shock and amazement, they're having Sunday school, a Bible study on the 4th of July. So I know who's coming to do the sermon. He's going to be really, really good. I am not going to finish John chapter 13 next week because I know a bunch of you are going to be gone. And that's totally understandable. It's a holiday weekend. For those of you here, because it's the 4th of July, I'm going to do the most unusual Bible study I guarantee that you've ever heard, with the exception of the Bible study I gave you on the blank piece of paper between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That was a pretty unique Bible study because it's a blank piece of paper. Next week's Bible study is totally different, unique for the 4th of July, a Bible study on the life of Thomas Jefferson. 
the founder, the drafter of the Declaration of Independence, one of our founding fathers, one of the most, I'll call him unique believers in American history. If you don't know his history, I'm going to knock your socks off next week. And it's going to be a Bible study on our life applications based upon the life that Thomas Jefferson led. So if you're in town, come to worship next Sunday, come to Bible study. We're holding off on John chapter 13 one more week. Next week, I'm doing Thomas Jefferson, a Bible study on Thomas Jefferson. If you want to know how somebody could do a Bible study on Thomas Jefferson, bring your friends and family coming to town for the weekend. Come to this library next week. We'll, we'll uh, continue next week. And then if you're back in two weeks, We'll finish John chapter 13 with a great study on sacrificial love. So next week, Thomas Jefferson. Two weeks, we continue with John chapter 13. Thanks for joining us in prayer. Let me, or joining us in class. Let me close this in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, come to thank you for the chance to study Judas as a reminder of why, in many respects, we are just like him. Every single one of us in our sin have been as treacherous as Judas. Every single one of us, me included, have been as despicable as Judas Iscariot. And Father, as you loved him, as you called him, as you sought him to be a believer and have a converted heart, so you have called us. And so we come to you in praise. We come to you in prayer, not because of our sinful, broken hearts, but we come to you as redeemed men and women, children of God, saved by your love, saved by your grace, saved by your blood. And it's through your word and your person and your mercy that is the only way we can do anything, the only way we can come before you. And so we thank you for the lesson of Judas. We thank you for the humility that we get through it. And we thank you for the converted heart you gave us to come to you and worship you as our Lord and our Savior. Keep us safe until we're here again. In Jesus' name, we ask all these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you. See you in a week or two. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.